We have uh, spent some time here in this theme of multiplying and making disciples. We started out with five questions. Why do we make disciples? What is a disciple? Who makes disciples? How are disciples made? And where do we make disciples? And that was part one. And then we picked up on part two with Jesus' process of making disciples. Come and see. Come and follow me. Come and be with me last week and today. Remain in me. And after this morning, I would like to begin next week on a third part of looking at the stages of making disciples. From a skeptic, with some practical tips and pointers as well, and some examples from Scripture, to those who are curious, to those who believe, disciples, and then disciple makers, and take you through the stages here of where Jesus wants to take us. But before we do that, we want to review here these other stages that we've been able to see here. Uh, Bert shared with us the first stage here with come and see. You know, Jesus spent about three, three and a half years of, of ministry uh, with these men and with his mission. And with this invitation, come and see in this first part of the process, Jesus spent four to five months of introducing himself and inviting others to investigate him. He said, what are you seeking? And then he said, come and see. Come and see. And he invited them to learn about the person of Christ and the nature of his ministry and mission. This is where Jesus began. He wanted them to see Jesus in real life. Jesus in 3D. Jesus in 360 degrees. Jesus in color. He introduced them to himself. He engages with them. And this is the natural way that the kingdom of God grows like a mustard seed. When Jesus is alive in you, you are a spiritual guide to say, come and see. Come, give, give, giving time and space to those curious to see the reality of God in ordinary life. Praying as you invite them to see how God is working and who he is and the reality of Jesus in your ordinary life. And during this phase here, Jesus also introduced them to his ministry in this phase. He showed them. He showed them his ministry wasn't about serving. Ministry isn't about serving them. It's about serving God by serving others. He served others at the wedding at Cana, the Samaritan woman. He showed them that the way we serve is a lot about who we are. And Jesus ministered from his character of humility and submission to his father. He acted in faith so God will work through him. And Jesus is, is teaching them that Christians are ministers. We are not, we are ministers. We aren't consumers. We're not using people, but we're serving people. And the way we serve is just as important as the end result of our service. And during this phase of come and see, Jesus also showed them the mission. The reason for his ministry and serving, the purpose. He tells them at the end of the come and see in John 4, verse 35, he says this. Say not, there are yet four months and then comes harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. He invited them to look and see the reason, the purpose for come and see here, for coming to Christ here. Uh, the, 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 he, he gives them in those verses the great commission and seed and kernel form here to enter into the mission, to prepare them for the next phase of the mission, the next phase of commitment, come and follow me. And he was creating in them a thirst, 
And this took time and effort, didn't it? Four to five months of just saying, come and see. Four to five months. A thirst for Christ, what he does, what he'll do with us. And it should challenge us who are serious about uh, making disciples in this phase of, of come and see to create time and space opportunities. To have the curious explore the person of Jesus. Invite them to explore the person of Jesus with you and other believers. And then we looked in the book of Mark. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. And this was a time that was spent 10 to 11 months after come and see. 10 to 11 months, almost a year, where Jesus, through his teaching and example, he didn't just engage with them like come and see. He established them. And the priorities of the truth of Scripture, a life of prayer. Lord teaches to pray. How do we pray? Jesus shows them the need for community, working together as believers, the work of outreach. He says, come and follow me. And he says what? I will make you fishers of men. This was personal, wasn't it? It was join me and we'll work and we'll share, share life together. It was a relationship. Come and follow me. I will make you. It was a closeness. It was a fellowship. It was a friendship. Uh, some of your closest friends are, 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 are people who you have shared life together with and gone through challenges together. I have lifelong friends because of things we've experienced uh, together that were difficult. And I have lifelong friends that we've experienced where there was much joy. There's a special bond, isn't there? As you go through hardships and joys. And Jesus wants the disciples to continue to be with him. The reason for others to walk with us and follow us is because Jesus is being formed in us and we're to help others follow Jesus together. Come and follow me. So it's in this process of the ministry here, come and follow me, that Jesus begins to give them responsibility. Uh, he doesn't just throw them in the water to swim, does he? He'll give them steps. He'll give them training along the way. He doesn't just hand them some materials and fill in the blanks, right? No, Jesus does live on the job training. He says, I will make you. And when he does send them out later, he doesn't send them by themselves, does he? He sends them two by two so one can lift up the other one. And then when they come back, he reviews to them what they when they return in Luke chapter 10. So he does things before in front of them and then explains what it was and what it meant. He shares teaching about the soils, right? And they say, what does that mean? And he'll, he'll gather the group and explain what it means. And he gives them in this phase, come follow me, a big vision, doesn't he? He says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is the outcome. Uh, they were they were ordinary men, but he gives them a big vision, just like us. Ordinary people who God has given us a magnificent cause to display his glory. And so that was the second phase, come and follow me. You can see this in Mark 1, or you can see it in Matthew chapter 4, 19. And then the third third phrase, uh, phase that we saw last week, the the process here is come and be with me. Come and be with me. And this was a time that would have taken over about 20 months. 20 months or so. And we looked in Mark chapter 3 last time. And here Jesus prepares them to take responsibility, to, to pass the baton, to give ownership for the world mission. And this is the phase where he doesn't just engage and he doesn't establish them. He equips them. He equips them. You know, there were thousands who came to be healed. There were thousands who, who followed at one time or another, or hundreds, but there are 12 in Mark 3 that he specifically and especially invests in Simon. And what does he do during that time? Well, he teaches them that love drives God's mission. Love drives God's mission. He tells them in Matthew chapter 9, 
and verse 35 through 38 this. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then says he to his disciples, the harvest tree is plenteous, but the laborers are few. He doesn't just say, look under the harvest. Now he says this, verse 38. Pray therefore at the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, to the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So he teaches them about the compassion that, that's to drive the mission of, of harvest, saw people without, and he knew that the answer was that God was going to have to work through labors, and he calls on them to ask God to send. And the night before he chooses those twelve in Mark chapter Three, what is he? He spends all night in prayer, Luke 6 tells us. He spends serious prayer about the men that he's going to select out of the crowd. He shows them us the need to, to listen for the voice of God, to listen to the word of God, to quiet the other voices in our head and listen to his word in the spirit, to examine our motives and sort out facts versus opinions, to sort out what God's burden and his heart is as through his word versus ours. And do you remember what he told them? He said, come be with me. And he told them two things that he was going to do. What were they? Well, he wanted them to be with him, right? But he also wanted them to multiply. So he's going to train them to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news, and to drive back the darkness here through the word of God, through their, through their actions, and also through the word uh, to cast out demons. So he says, so he wants them to be with him so they become like him. And, and, and to breathe him in and out. To, he wanted, he wanted them to be like their master and teacher. To be transformed as, as Paul will say to Timothy. To be equipped to every good work here. And so this is the, this is the phase beyond, uh, this is, this is the phase of, of, of equipping here so that they go and multiply the word that they've been taught. Because transformation could lead to being on God's mission. It's the word of God that drives out out the darkness. The the psalmist says, the entrance of your word gives light. And friends, Jesus calls us to be with him. So that we be equipped in our relationship with him to be transformed, to be on mission with him, participating with him on this mission. There are many ways to proclaim the word of truth. And we talked about how sometimes we hear that word preaching. We think of only one way that can happen. There are many ways that we can proclaim the word of truth as we live among the lost and the broken. And we make a difference with the light of God's word and the light of Jesus shining in us. But make no mistake, to be with Jesus is to be on a mission of multiplication and reproduction. He wants our lives to be the instrument of his mission to the world. Really, he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts, doesn't he? So he says, come and be with me to go and multiply. This is for our good and God's glory. And so he prays, he chooses the men, he presents his, his, uh, uh, they present themselves. He shows the process here. Uh, he'll be with them. He'll give them the power to do it. And then, uh, they, uh, go in their ordinary men, 12 or very ordinary men. No, no real obvious shining stars to the world culture. But Jesus is going to do something in them. And this morning, I want to look at the last stage here. Remain in me to go. Remain in me 
So this is this is this wasn't three to six months. This was what ten to twelve months. This is what was in eighteen months here of time. This is a few hours. This is a few hours in the upper room. John thirteen through eighteen. This is a few hours in the upper room for their lifetime. John fifteen, where Bruce read here, is where we're going to focus here. But this is how to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit in Him, so they can continue on the mission here. Think about it. Come and see. He engages them. Engagement, introduction. Come and follow me. He establishes them. Uh, 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 uh. Come and be with me. Equipping. And now he tells them to abide or remain in me and go as Jesus will leave and the Holy Spirit will live in them. How do you go from constant physical presence, on-the-job training, a private teaching and an explanation to now him leaving and passing the baton? And the answer Jesus tells, it's better for me to leave the Spirit with you and him to be inside you than to me be beside you. And so he passes the baton, and the answer is by the Spirit of God to minister the life of Christ in them and through them. Do you notice that all these stages in the process of how Jesus made disciples mean change? Things can't stay the same, can they? They mean change. Growth requires change. And for them to resist that change was to resist God. But this is what God was preparing them for, to better love and to better carry out his mission of truth. Oh, he knew they would stumble and fail, didn't he? He knew they, they'd scatter and fear. He tells them it's going to happen. But he knew by his spirit in them, he could trust the Holy Spirit to continue the work. They would actually, in John 14, 12 through 14, he actually tells them that their works are going to exceed his works. Because they needed to know the Holy Spirit would continue to equip them to continue to help them relate to Jesus as they move forward in his mission. Think about how things change for them. From Christ leading them in physical presence here to them leading churches through the power of the Holy Spirit. From Christ's physical presence to the Holy Spirit's presence through ministry of the word, prayer, and wisdom. From Christ directly training them to them training other leaders in the power of the Holy Spirit. From Christ, as he ministered and went about the region of Galilee, commanding the world to repent and believe, to them working in teams to do the same in the power of the Holy Spirit. From Christ, meeting people's needs, to them using the gifts of the Holy Spirit to meet needs. All through the power of Christ and the Spirit. And these changes will come because the Holy Spirit will be their counselor, their friend, their teacher, their guide, their parent in this work in and through them. And so Jesus says, I need to physically leave this world. I need to radically leave the world with my physical presence. So the work would get done through God's people and the power of the Holy Spirit. We are the strategy. There's no substitute for the church of God in the world. There's no other way. There's no alternative salt if the salt fails, Jesus says. And so this tells us the importance of heeding the words in John chapter 15. Remain in me to be released into his work as arrows from the bow, the master archer to that target to wherever he wishes. And so here we come to John chapter 15 that Bruce read. In chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jerusalem. And they would have passed through the temple grounds and they may have looked up in the holy place there where at the entrance above the linen curtain there was a large grapevine. 
with clusters of grapes and gold. The height of a man, Josephus, the historian says, made of pure gold and symbolizing Israel, Isaiah chapter 5. And Jesus here says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. And he fulfills this, this imagery here and he says, I'm the true Israelite. I'm the true vine. I'm what Israel was intended to be here. As a Jew, the true vine through which all the other branches receive their life. Let me ask you a question this morning. As Jesus gives this metaphor that Bruce uh, read about a vine and branches, why does a grapevine exist? What's the point of a grapevine? What would you say? Produce grapes, right? To make grapes. To make grapes. To produce fruit. In John chapter 15, there are at least, there are about eight times that the word fruit comes up. A key word in John chapter 15 is remaining or abiding in him. Continuing is the idea here. But the word fruit comes up several times. In fact, in the verses that we read, uh, we'll read this morning, it comes up about five times here. And when Jesus says, I am the true vine, this is the last, this is number seven of seven times that Jesus says, I am something. Remember he told that to Moses, I'm Yahweh, I am that I am. Here he says, I am the true vine. This is the seventh. This is the last of the seven sayings of Jesus. And this is the only one that adds on something. Jesus said in other places, I am the bread of life. I am the living water, right? Here he says, I am the true vine and what? My father is the husbandman. My father is the vine dresser. My father is the farmer. And so uh, the, 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 the role of, God's fa- of, of, of the Son of God's Father is not in a back seat somewhere. Because Jesus said, my Father is always working. So the Father is, is imported into this picture here, and the Holy Spirit's implied in this as well. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who flows from the vine to the branches. Just like the sap of the, of the vine to the branches here. So the Holy Spirit, all members of the Trinity are involved in this. Involved in this. So what I'd like you to see this morning, and I'll break it up into two parts here, is the characters and then the responsibility of the characters. The characters and then the responsibility of the characters. By the way, if it's getting too warm in here, uh, I won't be offended if you open a window or two or whatever. The characters. First of all, notice the first one. I am the true vine. So Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is saying he is the true vine. That means that he in himself is the true one. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 5 and many other pictures of what uh, of, of what Israel was to be as the vine, uh, you'll see over and over as you listen to the prophets, and you can look these up in your own concordance and, and bear this out, is that Israel failed to produce fruit. They were a shriveled vine. Isaiah 5, God calls, and this is the vine that I've labored in. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and when you're attached to me, there's fruit. There's fruit. Jesus is the is the one on whom God's purposes are resting. And his followers here are members of then the true vine. If they belong to him and they remain in him. This isn't just a, a clever picture Jesus is, is throwing out there. This is really the picture of who Jesus is. It's about who Jesus and his people really are. And what's going to happen then as a result here. So the first character is Jesus. He's the true vine. The second character we're introduced here in the text is look in verse 1. The father. The father is the gardener. He's the gardener. <clears throat> the gardener would be one who's in charge of the vineyard. 
He's the one who's in charge of caring for the vines. And Jesus said that this job of caring for the vines is the work of his father. Then you'll notice a third character, the disciples. Disciples are the branches of the true vine. They, they, they bear fruit. They bear fruit. <clears throat> and then you'll notice a fourth character here. There are branches that aren't joined. And remember, in the context here, Jesus is with his 12 disciples. Do you remember what one of those disciples was who wasn't really attached to the vine? He looked like he was part of the vine. But what was his name? Judas Iscariot, right? He he put on a good show. He he played in the background. He was he he was there, right? But he wasn't part of the vine. He wasn't part of the vine. And so there are branches there that look like they were attached to the vine, but but they 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 are not. And Judas would would have been one of those. And so what Jesus here is saying here with these characters is is that uh, there is intimate relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit with those who are attached to the vine. They, they are to enjoy this. They are to cultivate this. And a branch that would decide to go it alone, right? A branch that thinks they can live the life of Jesus without Jesus here, without the life of the vine, that doesn't work, does it? It's impossible. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, 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 there's death there. There's destruction. Verse six says they're, they're good for nothing but the fire. But Jesus' point is branches that remain in the vine and that, that submit to the pruner's knife when necessary. They're, they're alive. They bear fruit. And that's what Jesus is holding out for us, reminding his disciples, his true disciples, as he calls them. And verse 8 here uh, is that um, uh, Jesus is where we find life. Do you remember what John says in 1 John chapter 5? The same author who wrote this. And by the way, read John chapter 15 and then read 1 John. 1 John was written actually in chronological order before the book of John. Um, and the book of John tells us the signs of life of Jesus in us. And one of the things John says in 1 John is, he who has the Son has what? Life. Has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. What, what a tragedy for a Jew, for Judas, right? To be with Jesus, to have the greatest opportunity, have the invite of Jesus, and to not have life. Be literally right next to the one who had all life and to not have life. And so I just challenge any of you this morning who might uh, who might not know Jesus. You maybe be attached to Jesus. You may you may be involved in some of the things of Jesus, but you have not found life in Jesus. You have not given your life to Jesus. You not received His life. You are not attached to the vine by the truth of the gospel that Jesus took your place upon the cross and He took your sin upon you at the cross and He gives you His life in response here that turned Jesus. Judas should serve as a stark warning, shouldn't it? It, it should, it should, it should cause those who simply, uh, are associated with Jesus, but not in Jesus, but not have turned to Jesus in faith and repentance in Christ alone. It should cause them to fear. The good news for you is that Judas doesn't have any good, have any mercy left. Judas turned from Jesus and Judas ended his life and Judas is called the son of perdition. But the good news for those who may have associated with Jesus and not turn to Jesus is this. Turn in trust. Turn to Jesus. There is still mercy extended. There is still mercy extended. I want to then look at the responsibilities of these characters that we went through here. Responsibilities. First of all, Jesus. He's the true vine. 
Jesus doesn't want to just be in your life. Jesus calls you into his life. Do you see this picture here? I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. And notice what he says um, in verse four. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except that abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me and I in him. The same bring forth much fruit for without me ye can do nothing. Just calls you into his life. And his life isn't boring. It's not purposeless. It's not static and stays the same. It's wild. It's exhilarating. It's unpredictable. It'll be hard, but it is worth it. And notice Jesus' responsibility. He says in verse 4, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. That word clean is the same word of prune. You're pruned. My, by the word, a word there is the idea of message. It's the law glass. Jesus, uh, it's a purpose of living. Jesus tells them they have been pruned and they have been purified by the message that he gave them. Now think about what that message was. It was turn from this to me. Come and follow me, right? If I, remember they left their nets and they followed Jesus, right? There, there, there is, there is, there is, there's that picture there of being purified from the old life and coming to Jesus here. Uh, Jesus tells us uh, that if any man will come after me, what does he say? Any man, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross, a symbol of execution, and follow me. Right? Uh, uh, this is this is this is purifies us. Is when Jesus is supreme in our lives, the other things we let go. When Jesus is the one we're grasping in faith, guess what? I can't hold on to other things. And so this is the responsibility. He pruned and purified them by the message he gave them. But notice Jesus' responsibility. He says he'll abide in us. He'll remain in us. Uh, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. This is union with Jesus. I in you. What else will he do? Well, he says uh, you'll bring forth fruit. You'll bring forth fruit. He produces fruit in us. And he sustains us by his word. Look in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, shall ask what you will, it shall be done to you. He sustains us by the word of his truth, the word of his promise. There's another responsibility that's here. It's the father's responsibility. Remember the father, he's the gardener of the branches here. Uh, notice that it is he who, in this passage, he's the one who purges or prunes the branches so they produce more fruit. As they were growing uh, grapes in the Mediterranean uh, region of Israel, and the way they would cut off the dead branches, and they would burn some of that for their winter heat. In the springtime, they would take some of those runners, some of those tendrils that would start to come off the branches, and they would snip them. Why would they do that? Because some of the energy of the plant would be going to those and it needed to be going to the vine to produce more fruit here. And so the father is the one who purges or prunes these branches so that they will produce more fruit. Notice the progression here. In 15, chapter 15, verse 3, he says, no fruit, right? Those are the, those are the Judases, right? Then he says fruit. And then he talks about more fruit. And then he talks about much fruit. In John 15, verse 5 and verse 8. What's the point about fruit? Does that vine bear the fruit? Those branches bear the fruit for itself? 
No, it's for others to, to have, right? It's for others to, to use here. And so Jesus, uh, 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 the Father here, will cut off branches that aren't bearing fruit to be burned, and he prunes the ones that are bearing fruit to bear more. And friends, this is, this is, this is the time when, when the pruning, the cutting away is hard, isn't it? It hurts. But I want you to see here from these verses, that if the Father is pruning away some of the branches, some of the tendrils that start to come off of the vine here, so it produces more, more, more fruit, he is close to the vine, isn't he? The vine dresser is never closer to the vine, never taking more thought over its, over the, uh, over the vine's uh, health and productivity than when the vine dresser has the knife in his hand. And whatever trials are in your life, whatever things Jesus might be using in your life to, to, to say more of me and less of you, that's when Jesus, though he might seem far away, is closest. That's when the Father is closest, isn't he? When he has the knife in his hand. When he's doing what is best. Notice the other thing about the Father here. Verse uh, 7 says, You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. It shall be done to you. That's by the granting of the Father, isn't it? So the Father here grants the requests of those who are remaining in the vine, through the word remaining in them, through them dwelling in the word here. And notice the last thing that this passage says in verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. The Father is the one who receives great glory by fruit being produced. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 5.16, right? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's the Father who receives the glory. We're attached to the vine Jesus. The Holy Spirit flows from him to us. And the point is, so the Father receives his glory. That's his role. That's his role. But then I want us to notice here the disciples. The disciples remain in Jesus to bear fruit. Abide in Jesus to bear fruit. That's the only way to bear fruit. That's the only way to be fruitful. And by the way, we don't make the fruit come, do we? But we attach ourselves, we are attached to the vine here. Uh, the key word here in this passage is abide. In verses 1 through 11, it's used 11 times. Here, uh, it's translated abide or continue or remain. But what does it mean to abide? It means to keep in fellowship with Christ so that his life works in and through us to produce fruit. It means weaning off our flesh. And living off the feast of Jesus. This involves the word of God. This isn't a mystical uh, uh, thing here. This involves the word of God. This involves confession of sin so that nothing hinders our communion with him. This involves obedience because we obey, because we love him. Verses 9 and 10. But how can we tell we're abiding in Christ? Is it that I have this, this, uh, this feeling of electricity in me here? What does it mean to abide in Christ? Is there a special feeling? No, but there are some evidences that the scripture talks about that are clear. Um, for one thing, verse 2 tells us, when you're abiding in Christ, there's fruit that comes. There might be different sizes of, uh, of crops, right? There might be different times of crops, but there's fruit that comes. Uh, when you experience the Father's pruning, you'll bear more fruit, verse 2. The believer who's abiding in Christ has his prayers answered according to God's will, verse 7. He experiences a deepening love for Christ and for other believers. Verse 9, he continues in the love that the, the Father has for the Son. Uh, he loves others, verses 12 and 13. 
He experiences joy. Chapter 15, verse 11. God's joy, not man's joy. And so this abiding relationship should be what it is for the branch and the vine, but it has to be cultivated in the Christian life. It's not automatic, is it? It's not like I say, okay, I'm abiding with Jesus. No, abiding with Jesus means dwelling in his word, dwelling in fellowship, relationship with him. It it, it demands worship. It demands meditation on God's word. It's prayer. It's service. Uh, But what a joy it is. Warren Wearsby says, once you have begun to cultivate this deeper communion with Christ, you have no desire to return to the shallow life of the careless Christian. The responsibilities of disciples. What is the responsibility of the disciple? Depend on Christ. Depend on Christ. Um, notice uh, what he says here in verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There can be a part of our lives where we're depending on the flesh and we're doing a lot of stuff, but Jesus says it's not accomplishing anything. It's like the hamster on the wheel, right? But, depending on Christ being deeply rooted in him, there is productivity. There is productivity. You know, why does a a tree has to have roots to provide shade, right? Uh, a, a tree has to have roots to provide fruit. You think of the picture in Psalm 1, that tree planted by the rivers of water. And what does it do is it meditates on the word of God. It produces fruit in its season, in God's time. It produces fruit for others. You know, uh, my, my dad reminded us uh, last Wednesday that sometimes we can live like a practical atheist. We know God, we know the Bible, we know the gospel story, but we can live our lives independently from him, or so we think, right? And the way we live, though it might be moral, it might, we might be living like a moral atheist. But friends, the life of, of a believer is a life that's rooted in Christ. That's rooted in Christ. Um, someone was telling me about, a, about an old well that was outside the front door of a family farmhouse in New Hampshire. And that water from that well was, it was always cold. Super cold and it was pure. No matter how hot the summer was or the drought was, that well was, was always a source of refreshment and joy. It was always full. And that old well stood for years until they modernized the farmhouse. They brought electric lights in the farmhouse and door plumbing and hot and cold running water. And that old well, that hand dug well, was no longer needed. So they sealed it, put a top over it, sealed it, and they're just going to use it for future emergencies. One day, someone who grew up on that farm had a hankering for some of that cold, pure water of that old well. So they unsealed the well, and they lowered a bucket down for a taste from from their old memories of that refreshment uh, from their youth. And that bucket hit a dry bottom. There was nothing there. And he was shocked to find out that that well that had survived in the old days, some of the severest droughts, bone dry. And he asked some of the older folks about why that would happen. And he learned that wells of that kind were fed by hundreds of tiny underground rivulets that 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 would seep into that well in in a steady flow of water. And as long as the water was being drawn up out of the well, new water would still flow through those rivulets keeping them open. But when that water stopped flowing and they sealed it, those rivulets began to clog with sediment and mud and close up. And that well dried up, not because it was used too much, 
but because it wasn't used enough. And what a picture here of what it is to dwell with Christ, right? It, our, our lives can grow stagnant as we as we're not in fellowship with God. Uh, we, we we use a phrase. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship, right? And that's a good phrase as long as you understand what religion, what true religion is, pure religion, right, James? And what a true relationship is with Jesus Christ. But our our life, our life, we're safe for relationship with Jesus. We have the life of God that has been poured into us. Here, that's what salvation is. That's what eternal life is—the very life of God that's in us. Here, it's not—it's not something to to bat our eye at, uh, our eyes at here. And we're to draw on what God has given us in living water here, and that's what it means to abide. Well, how do you do that? Well, notice what He says: If ye abide in Me, and My words abide in you. And my words are to you. We're to dwell in the word. The, Paul puts it this way in Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. In little trickles, right? No. Richly. What that means is we let the word of God be the umpire. That's the idea of dwell. It umpires our home, our house, our heart, Christ's home. That means that there's not rooms in our hearts that aren't open to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. Over which he does not declare his word over us. That means that they're not places that we're trying to hide from Jesus Christ. That means his word has what? Free course because it's the word of life. And so I wonder, are you in the word of God this morning? We always go back to these things, don't we? The word of God and prayer and, uh, and fellowship with other believers and a witness of Christ uh, to others. It's the word of God we got to be meditating. We're not just reading the Bible, though we need to start there, but we need to be meditating there. Are there truths from Scripture that are ruminating in your mind throughout the day that you've been? Are you walking in the Word? It's living water. It's life. It's good for the soul. It's good for us. And so Jesus says, if you abide in my in me and my words abide in you. What does it mean your words abide in you? It means that your life is 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 in surrender to the Lord and His Word, right? That there, you're, you're in obedience to it. That you're not just looking in the mirror and saying, yep, that looks good. No, you're, you're looking in the mirror and the word of God is in the mirror and you're saying, wow, God changes in me. And you're, you're, you're surrounding the Lord and you're pursuing Him. You're putting off and you're putting on. You're being renewed. You're being renewed. So dwell in the word. Saturate your mind with the word of God. Paul says in Ephesians 5, understanding what the will of the Lord is. It's obedience out of love, keeping His commandments. We'll talk about later here. And also notice what he says. And you shall ask what you will and it shall be done to you. That it's a life of speaking to God out of my life in submission to his word because of his grace flowing in me. Then I am speaking to him. Yeah, I'm going to have the quality time as we learned Wednesday, but it's a constant time. I'm asking for his resources to do his will. Someone tells a story of them and their wife as they were hiking the high meadows of the Swiss Alps. They saw farmers who were cutting the high-standing mountain uh, grasses with the, with the old size that 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 uh, hand mowing tool used since ancient times. And they got closer, and they saw that once in a while, these two who were cutting the grass with these uh, knives would pause periodically and pull out of their pockets this this flat stone. And then they would draw those stones back and forth across the blades. And the purpose, of course, was to, to restore the sharpness. And the sharpening was done. They would go back to cutting and then they would, they would repeat this process later. Cut and sharpen, cut and sharpen several times. Ten minutes of cutting followed by 
uh, uh, minutes of, uh, of sharpening. And sometimes that time of sharpening actually took longer than the cutting. And you might wonder, well, why waste five minutes sharpening the blades? Well, any of you who use the chainsaw know that you have to do this too, right? You could push on that chainsaw and you could, you could lean on it, but those, 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 uh, that chainsaw gets duller. It's, it's gonna work harder. It's gonna take longer to cut. And you need to, you need to keep the blade sharp so that the chainsaw does its work for you. The weight of the chainsaw itself cuts through that wood. Why not keep cutting? Get the job finished and head home earlier because every swing it gets duller. Every swing it gets duller. And with that increasing dullness, the, the, the work becomes harder and it becomes less productive. And friends, have you found the Christian life harder and harder? I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying we need to get back to the word and sharpen. Remember, this is Christ's life flowing through us. Uh, we need to get back to the vine here. We need to get back in the word. We need to be, get back in communication with our Lord here. We need to respond to him. We need to obey. This is part of the sharpening process here. And it takes a long time to learn that, doesn't it? It takes a long time to learn that. This cutting and sharpening principle here. And the more we walk with the Lord, the more we realize how much we need the sharpening. How much we need the sharpening to do the work. You know, um, the longer we go without training, the duller the soul gets, doesn't it? The soul gets very dull. Very dull. The longer we go without hearing God and His Word, the longer we go uh, with talking to Him here and bringing the things of God to Him and praising Him for who He is and, and asking for His help, you know what we become? We become empty, don't we? There becomes a distance between us and the Lord and that fellowship of the vine and the branches is is, is empty. But listen... When we're sharpened and we're walking with him, we're abiding in him, there is fruit. Verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that he bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So shall ye be my disciples. It's it, the, the, the idea is this. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. It's not can be translated here. This brings great glory to my Father. So I ask you this morning, Jesus gave these words to these disciples. It's just a small portion of his word. And then when he leaves them after his death and resurrection, he says, go. Why did they need this before they were told go? They needed this because there is nothing in the Christian life that we can do. He says this very clearly. Not me, you can do nothing. There's nothing in the Christian life we can do without being in the vine. Without the Holy Spirit taking the life of the vine and pouring it into us. And I wonder, how are you living? Are you living in such a way that you're living apart from the vine? Or are you living in such a way because of God's graciousness and putting you in the vine that you're drawing upon the vine? Some of you hear this word fruit and you think, okay, I got to bear fruit in order to be accepted by God. And that's not the point. The point is Jesus Christ makes you accepted by God. He's the one who gives you a new heart. He's the one that makes you alive. And because of this salvation, you bear fruit as you're growing in him, right? So we don't bear fruit to be accepted by God. That's legalism, right? And you can't do that anyway. It's, it's dead fruit. Hebrews 6 calls it dead works, right? But friends, the life of God that's been ministered to us through the gospel is a life that changes, isn't it? Degree by degree, different 
different uh, uh, accelerations of time with different people, right? But the Holy Spirit has begun a work in us that he's going to complete. So friends, I don't. I want you to look at this this passage here, and and I want you to change the things that the Holy Spirit is is telling you to change. But I don't. If you were to say, "Boy, I need to really work harder producing fruit," you're missing the point. As we are drawing on the vine, we produce fruit. God produces the fruit. God produces the fruit. Abide in Him, so that you can go and be on mission. As we pray and close here this morning, I want to remind you that these words are just written to the disciples. These words were written, and Jesus even uh, intimates it several times in John 13 through 18, for also those who believe on his name. That's who we are. Now, we're being followers of Jesus Christ as well. And as we draw upon Jesus through his word, we spend our time with Jesus as we as we're connected with other believers and and, and, and and encouraging that growth in Jesus among one another, we are sent out, we are the scattered church to share the same life with others. And so as you leave this morning, remember, right now we're gathered. But God doesn't leave us gathered all the time, right? He scatters us and puts us in networks of different relationships to be on his mission to make disciples. Remain in me and go. Let's pray. Lord, this is a task that is impossible except to slaves of Jesus Christ. This is a calling that you have given to all your followers. Lord, I pray that each of us would evaluate where we are with Jesus Christ. That those who have been saved and redeemed by the blood of his blood of the Lamb would continue and abide in that vine. That we've been saved uh, for relationship. We've been saved for eternity and, we'd be sa- and we've been saved for right now. God has left us on this earth to do his work and to bear fruit. May we walk in his grace and draw upon that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you.